Last time I was here was Mother's Day 2018, and the fact that I was able to preach a Mother's Day sermon with my mother-in-law in the crowd and they asked me back, I think that I deserve a lot of kudos for that. So, um, so I made it, uh, was, what, 28 months later. A lot has changed in our world. But um, this morning, you know, it's interesting because last time, uh, last time I preached and then a couple months later we came back for Thanksgiving, and, and there's something that impacted me then that ties over into now. So I want to get to that a little bit, but I want to continue on Steve's series, uh, Finding Freedom from Stuff in a World that Seeks to Bind Us. So this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to let, I want to let you guys know that it doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are, how rich you feel or how poor you feel. There's a battle constantly being waged to earn your attention and your resources, your time and your emotion, your focus and your devotion. We live in a world, and specifically in a nation, that teaches us to consume, to make life about us, to find fulfillment in the abundance of our possessions. Everyone here and everyone listening, hi mom and dad, is fighting the same battle in one form or another. And if you think that you aren't fighting that battle, you know what that tells me? It tells me you've already lost. You've already lost the battle. So I want to think about some of the things that we consume. I did a little bit of reading on consumption statistics. Each year, the average American spends $583 on alcohol. Now, I know none of you guys do that. $659 on Christmas. Mom, you're way overboard. $766 on entertainment. $1,100 on coffee, that might be uh, uh, underestimate for Lori and I, Uh, $1,200 on cell phone service, $1,866 on clothing a year, $2,109 on gasoline, $3,459 on dining out. We'll consume over 220 pounds of meat per person per year. We'll drink, you guys, it's more than that, I think, for the Malone family. So we had, we had 50 pounds of meat since we got here on Wednesday, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, we'll drink 140 billion cups of coffee and consume 57 pounds of sugar per person in a year. And we love our vehicles too, right? In 2019, Americans spent $462 billion on new vehicles with an average price of $36,718 per vehicle. Having five kids at home, let's not even get started on groceries. Uh, We've now reached a point in our budget that groceries is our largest expenditure with seven people in our house. And I know that we don't even have teenagers yet, so I can't fathom what that's gonna be like when I come back here in five years. What about what happened Thursday? Did anybody eat on Thursday? Did you consume a little bit? I know we cooked enough to feed a a small nation, right? We still have a lot of leftovers that we'll be eating on today and tomorrow before we leave. Uh, One article I read says that the average American eats between 2,500 and 4,500 calories for their Thanksgiving meal, and I know you all snacked before and after, right? 20 million people ate green bean casserole on Thursday, including us, thank you, Leela which accounts for 40% of Campbell's Soup's total sales of cream of mushroom for the entire year. 
just green bean casserole soup, or green bean casserole. Amazing. We consume over 5 million gallons of jellied cranberries, enough to fill eight Olympic swimming pools. We buy over 200 million pounds of potatoes, 50 million pounds of sweet potatoes in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving. We buy about 20 million pre-made pies. We had three homemade pies this week. I have tried every one of them, and I'm on round two on a couple of those. According to the same article, some good news. Steve, you can let down your guard a little bit. The average American only gains eight-tenths of a pound over the holiday season. I find that a little hard to believe, but I'm pretty sure I gained eight-tenths of a pound just in the last couple days. You know, these things can become comical. They can become funny, interesting maybe. But it gets to something else. We as a society, and in this country, we see little barrier between the things that we want and the things that we get. Right? There's really not much holding us back from the things that we want and the things that we get. We are driven towards more consumption. So why as a society, and I would argue even as a church, do we struggle so much with consuming, with materialism? with the accumulation of stuff. Do we see it as a problem? Let's dive a little deeper into that and and see what the world teaches us about stuff, the things that we have. Every person in this room probably has something that you've been wanting for a while, right? You've had your eye on it for a while. And maybe you're hoping someone is gonna pick that up for you for Christmas. You've hinted enough times, Steve, uh, shoes, clothes, he says he only gets those for Christmas. I think he's hoping that he hints a little bit. Uh, He hints enough to where Lori's actually going to buy it. She's shaking her head. No, I don't think it's going to happen. He's going to have to buy his own Christmas presents if it's clothes and shoes. Uh, Maybe you're going to reward yourself for all all the hard work that you've done. Maybe you got the the bonus at work and you, you think it's time to buy that one purchase that you've been looking for for a long time. Maybe it's a new pair of shoes. Maybe it's a new gadget. Maybe it's a trip that you want to take, or maybe you're like those people on those commercials that have those bows on the cars sitting out in the driveway, and you're going to reward yourself with a car this Christmas. I don't know. Big or small, you're probably thinking of that thing right now, right? I want to show you what my thing is, if we can get it up on the slide. This is it. (laughs) You know, I'm not big on things. I'm not a things guy. I don't care too much for gadgets. I don't care too much for cars, fancy clothes. That's not my thing. I drive a 2003 Honda Odyssey that I can't wear the seatbelt when it rains, okay? Figure that one out. (laughs) I don't really care. I don't care about those things. Now, I'll get to the things later that I struggle with, because I think we all struggle in different ways in battling this, uh, this desire for stuff. But there's one thing that I've been fixed on for probably two years now, and it is this. Let me tell you a little bit about this. This is the Breville BES. 870XL Barista Express Espresso Machine. Listen to the partial description from Amazon. Dose control grinding. Hmm? Precise espresso extraction. Okay. Microfilm milk texturing. Grind size dial. Hands-free operation. Now, I'm not even sure that I know what all of that means. But, but it sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Any, any coffee espresso drinkers out there that could probably handle this machine too, right? I've, been, I've had my eyes on it for a while. Now, I, I monitor the price. Right now, it's kind of at a peak. I think, my theory is, 
I've been looking at it so many times on Amazon that they know that the price can be set way up here. It was for sale like a week and a half ago, and I was looking at it every day because I couldn't convince my wife that I needed it. And then it jumped like 100 bucks, okay? Um, regardless, I want that thing. And I don't want things, but I want that thing. Now, from, from past experience, though, I know what's going to happen if I make that purchase. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? It's happened to you, I'm sure. Maybe it doesn't happen all the time, but I think it happens most of the time. We build up and we build up and we build up about a particular purchase. The anticipation is exhilarating. And you know what? That's usually the peak of happiness from that object, is the anticipation. From there on out, the joy from the purchase usually declines. And what do we do? Do we say, oh, I'm not going to do that again. I know that it's just the buildup. I know that the anticipation was really good, but the purchase wasn't that great. I just won't make any more of those purchases like that anymore. No, we don't do that. Usually, when we find out that that thing, when I get that, I put it on my counter at home, and I realize that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's actually, that probably is a lot of work, even though it's hands-free operation. The buildup and the anticipation was actually better than the, the, the purchase itself. But what we do is we, we then set our sights on the next big purchase that we can fill that anticipation for, that buildup. And we think that maybe, just maybe, that next time we'll get a good deal of fulfillment out of it. We find ourselves in this cycle of anticipation, expenditure, and lack of fulfillment. Now, guys, these things aren't all bad. I'm not saying, it's not bad if I go out and buy that, right? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we have to understand how our emotions play into that and where our hope lies. And if we're trying to find fulfillment in an espresso machine, man, we're on the wrong track. <laughs> there are all kinds of studies that look into materialism and happiness. When you, boil all, when you boil down all these studies, they have a common theme. Things don't satisfy. Not only that, but those who seek to find their fulfillment in things and stuff, their happiness is actually de decreased. The pursuit of happiness through material items actually has the reverse effect. You become less happy. So we know that materialism is rooted in attempting to find happiness and attempting to, to find fulfillment. But are there other reasons why we continually pursue it? I think there are. So it's not just that fulfillment that we find from the purchase. It's other things that contribute to our incessant pursuit of material things. One glaring reason why we continually add to our things, why we focus on the temporal, is comparison. Have you guys done that? Have you compared yourself to other people, what they have, what you have compared to what they have? We often envy what other, people's ha other people have, whether it's perceived or real. Sometimes this comes through wanting relationships that other people have. Maybe it's the family that someone else has. Maybe it's wanting the career that someone has or the success that you see someone else have. We know that social media has only heightened this problem, right? Because you get everyone's highlight reel. You get what they want you to know about their life, but not what really goes on behind the scenes. And one thing I'm learning as, as life goes along, and I'm 37 now, Gentile, I think, thinks I'm like super old. Um, but uh, one, thing, one thing I'm learning is that life is a lot messier than what I thought it was 20 years ago, right? 
Everybody has those things that they're struggling with. Another way that we compare is by what others have, by their possessions, their homes, their cars, the vacations they take, the clothes they wear. Now, it's interesting how we do this. I've read about this thing called social comparison theory. It's fascinating to me. You have upward comparison and downward comparison, okay? And not every aspect of this is negative. Sometimes it can drive us. It can drive us to challenge ourselves to be better. So we see what someone else is doing, and we want to attain those goals. Think competition. You know, I, I love, well, I used to love playing basketball. And when you grew up as a boy in Indiana, you love playing basketball, right? Anybody watch the movie Hoosiers? If you haven't, you need to do that. Make that your goal over this holiday season, along with a couple other that I'll tell you about here shortly. Uh, some, some comparison drives us, right, to be better, to do more, to challenge ourselves. In downward comparison, though, we usually compare to others that are slightly worse than us to make ourselves feel better about our abilities or our skills. So, man, I can be really good at basketball if I'm playing with certain people, and that makes me feel pretty good. I feel like I'm an all-star, right? Even though I can barely make it up and down the court these days. Uh, so it makes us feel better about ourselves. And the, the way that we typically use downward comparison is in morality. In other words, I'm not obeying God, but hey, I'm better off than that guy. I'm better off than that guy. His sin is greater than mine. We try to make ourselves feel less guilty by comparing to those who are doing worse things than we are. Now, on the other side, back to materialism, we often compare what we have to someone slightly above us. So when we're talking about upward comparison, it's not, we're not comparing ourselves to the people like Jeff Bezos, right, Warren, Warren Buffett. We're, we're comparing ourselves to those that are just slightly above us. Essentially, what we have is almost enough, but not quite. Right? It, it's funny how we do this. My family recently participated in something called the Matthew 25 Challenge through uh, World Vision at our church. The objective of the challenge was to open your eyes to everyday experiences of, of people that are living in poverty who are living with less than what we have. Monday was skip lunch. My tummy was growling by like 2 o'clock, right? Only eat rice and beans for dinner. Tuesday was only drink water. Now, in our house, that was only a problem for me. Everyone else, that's all they drink is water in my house. Um, I was, I, I'm addicted, right? I'm addicted to coffee. So that one was a challenge for me. Wednesday was sleep on the floor. Anybody have back problems? All right. I woke up with, with a sore back on Thursday morning. Thursday was wear the same clothes twice. Now, some of you, that's not a problem. You know, my kids that uh, just stay home all day, and uh, they, they, Asher specifically, oh, sorry, Asher, I'll embarrass you. Four or five days in a row, who cares? <laughs> uh, and Friday was to write a note to someone who's going through a difficult time. Okay? We were supposed to share these things on Facebook as we experienced them to participate in this challenge. So Monday night, we were sitting at the table, and I posted a picture of our rice and beans. Now, our rice and beans, that's not a big problem for me to eat rice and beans. Like, I love rice and beans. I could eat it five days a week and still be happy. Red beans and rice. Um, but for other people, I guess it was a challenge. So we posted a picture of our beans and rice on Facebook. A little bit later, we got a text. It may have been when we were still sitting down at the table. I don't know. But we got a text from some of our very close friends, Jim and Felicia. 
And they said this, may we come over and get some vegetables for our village? We saw that your beans were blessed with them. Of course, we laughed about it and we moved on. But a few days later, I met with Jim and we were talking about the challenge. And he told me that they instantly noticed that we had vegetables in our beans. And they thought it was just supposed to be rice and beans. Now, they had also noticed that our minister's wife on Tuesday had lemon in her water. And so they spotted this, right? They compared what they had to what we had. And we had celery and peppers in our, was it celery and peppers? Okay, celery and peppers in our rice and beans. And Farah had lemon in her water. And I think they were a little offended by that. They felt slighted. He said he would have never, Jim said this, he would have never noticed those things on a regular basis, right? But because they were slightly better than what, than what they had, he noticed them instantly. They were obvious to him. He was comparing his measly rice and beans to our succulent rice and beans with peppers and celery. He was comparing his plain water to that luscious lemon water that Farah had. Us cheaters were sticking out like a sore thumb. You may ask, what's the problem with that? And I get it, right? Slightly upward comparison. We like to aspire to be greater, to be better, to improve our station in life. That's what we're taught. That's the American dream, right? But here's where the problem comes in with the slight upward comparison way of life. We never have enough. What we have is never enough. But we almost have enough. We're just not there. And when we don't have enough, but we are almost there, we live life differently. We become more self-centered and less generous. We are driven by getting that next thing. And when that happens, our focus is shifted from loving God and loving people to loving ourselves and looking for happiness in all the wrong places. So we've talked about a world that teaches us that we can find happiness in things, that we need to compare our lives to those around us and just reach that next level. But is materialism just represented in the physical possessions we have? Because I told you, I'm not a things guy, right? I don't care. But is that the only thing that materialism is summed up in? And I would say no. I have another struggle. And it's summed up in this. We can go to Luke chapter 12 and you can identify my struggle. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is where my struggle comes in. For me, the bondage of stuff comes in the form of building bigger barns. I can feel good about myself when I compare myself to people that just desire things, right? I can start making myself feel like I'm on target when I compare myself to them. But then I start looking at where where does my problem with stuff come in, and it comes up with this, with building bigger barns. It's not about the numbers necessarily for me. Its root is in the safety and comfort that I receive from the numbers, okay? 
Deeper than that, it's in knowing that I'm in control. I will never have to depend on anybody else. I'll never have to worry. But I'm depending on myself when I think like that. I'm not depending on him when I think like that. You know, we do that, don't we? we? We try to make sure that nothing will ever go wrong. That's kind of what we do as parents sometimes, right? We want to make sure that our kids never experience bad things in life. We want to save ourselves from any potential heartache, from any anxiety, any struggle, any dependence on anybody else but ourselves. We want to be tough. You know, I can remember 10 years ago, I read an article about how much money you needed to have saved by certain milestones in life. This is the way my mind works, and it drives me crazy, okay? And it drives Chelsea specifically. It drives her more crazy than me. Uh, I'm a numbers person. She's not, and I talk to her about numbers all the time. But I read this article, and by the age of 30, you should have your annual salary saved, okay? By the age of 40, you should have three times your annual salary saved. By the age of 50, six times. And by the age of 60, you should have eight times your annual salary saved. So I'd always run the numbers and see if I was on track. There's a lot of variables there, I might add. Then there's the 4% rule. Anybody heard of the 4% rule? It's recently been adjusted by the guy who invented it. Now he thinks it's more like 45 or 5 but we won't go into depth. It says that you can withdraw 4% of your overall assets in a given year, and you will never run out of money, or the chances are very slim that you'll ever run out of money. So essentially, putting it in numbers terms, if you have a million bucks, you can take out $40,000 every year, and over the, over, uh, the history of the market, uh, you would never run out of money, okay? Those are the things that I think about. And those things can become my God, and they can control me. So it's not about stuff for me, it's about building bigger barns. And I have to constantly be on the defense for that. I'm an investor, okay? My, my job is a financial advisor. That's what I do all day. I, I live this stuff, I breathe this stuff every day. I love helping people with this stuff. Love it. I, and I, but I see the people who come in to my office or do Zoom appointments or do phone appointments at this point, and I see some that are consumed by the numbers. That's, that's what they think about all the time. They panic. I have one guy that calls me like three times a week to get an update, and, and he panics when the market declines you know, a percent or two in a day, which we've seen a lot of in the last year. They depend on their investments to soothe their anxiety and to provide them with comfort and a feeling of safety. And then I see the other people who come into my office and they are carefree, stress-free, uh, they, put, they put their trust in me, and they are at peace because the amount that they have in their account is not what they're trusting in. And it's amazing to see the difference in just in anxiety levels between those two types of clients. Incredible. And I feel myself being pulled between those two mindsets. My natural tendency is to seek comfort in the numbers, to seek safety in the bigger barns. But I've also seen what it does to some, and I don't want that for myself and my family. So the world tells us to seek happiness and stuff. The world tells us to constantly compare ourselves to those just slightly above us. 
The world tells us to seek comfort and safety in building bigger barns. And guys, this isn't something to gloss over. It's not something to just put on the back, back burner and never really consider it in your life. It's not an easy topic, right? It, it, ranks, it ranks right up there with politics. And unfortunately for me, I've been in uh, the world of politics and government and now finances for the last 12 years or so. <laughs> so, so I've been in this stuff all day long. These are not easy, easy topics. But scripture talks about it all the time. It's in there so much. So it, we obviously need to pay attention to it and we need to consider how it's impacting our relationship with the creator of the universe. It's a big deal. And it's not a big deal because material possessions are inherently evil. They're not. It, it's not a big deal because money is the root of all evil. Scripture doesn't say that. It's not a big deal because that God doesn't want you to enjoy life to the fullest. It's a big deal because in order to enjoy life to the fullest, we must put this piece of our life in perspective. We must not allow stuff to take the place of God in our lives. And it can. It absolutely can. Maybe it's gradual, but over time we have a tendency to slump lower and lower into materialism. If we're not aware of its dangers and aware that God has something better for us, it can wreck our spiritual life, tear it apart. And that's what we want to talk about now. How in the world, in a world that seeks to bind us, to enslave us, to distract us, to lead us astray, how do we flee from materialism and live a life that's pleasing to God? So I want to, I want to go from where the problem is and how, how that affects us to now what are some of the solutions? What are the things that we can practically do? And I want you to take from, from today things that you can practically do to change that mindset, to challenge yourself, okay? So I want to get to that now because this is a spiritual battle. When stuff becomes our God, it is absolutely a spiritual battle. We know it's a struggle, right? Whether it's the unquenchable desire for more, better, bigger stuff, or the unquenchable desire for more, better, bigger barns. We all struggle in one form or another, every single one of us. But what does scripture say about our struggle to be content? What does scripture say about the material things of this world? What does scripture say about money, how we should handle our finances? Does it say that it's all bad and we need to live a life of poverty? Is that what we think? Does scripture say that money is the root of all evil and any pursuit of more dollars in our bank account is unacceptable? The quick answer to that, no. Let's go into that a little bit deeper. Now, for me, I wish it were a straight up formula. As a numbers person, I would love for it to be a formula, right? Make X amount, tithe X amount, save X amount, buy X and X and you'll be okay. Don't cross this line over here by purchasing something that costs X. Only live in a home with X square feet and with X number of bedrooms and X number of bathrooms. Only buy cars that cost X and have X amount of devices. That would be so much easier. Consume X amount of food and spend X amount at restaurants. You guys get my point, right? Wouldn't it be so easy if the lines were clearly defined and all you had to do was to follow the strict guidelines? Give me a handbook and I'm okay. We can, we can go by those strict rules. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. It's just not. 
What, script, what scripture teaches about our interaction with stuff and money is a lot more nuanced and blurry. At least that's the way it appears to me. So let's look through some of the scriptures and see if we can glean from what it says. After we look at some of these scriptures, I'd like to give you those three practical things that you can take away from today and find a way out of materialism to no longer allow stuff to bind you. Let's go through some of these rapid fire. Rapid fire, you, get, you kids know what that means, don't you? Hebrews 13:5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll do two from there. First one, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Further down in chapter 6, it says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also, what? Reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also, what? Reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then there's this. Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So we know that when it's all boiled down, it comes to this. Are we seeking God and his kingdom? Or are we building up our own little kingdom? Are we focused on today or are we focused on eternity? Is all of our energy directed towards the temporal, the temporary things, or eternity, the things that'll last forever? If you want to strive to build up his kingdom, here are the three things that you can focus on. Number one, be grateful. Number two, be generous. And number three, be grounded. Yes, I'm the guy with three points, and they all start with the letter G today. I never do that, but it worked out well for this particular sermon. Number one, be grateful. If you want to live a life free from the bondage of stuff, a life focused on God's kingdom rather than on your own, practice being grateful. Here's what Paul says about it. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Can you say this morning that you are content 
with the situation that you're currently in? Are you content with your family life? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your relationships? Are you content with your finances? Are you content with the stuff that you have? Man, that's a tough question, isn't it? This past Monday, I was at my office. I was on the office phone with somebody, and Chelsea rang my cell phone, and I didn't answer. And we have a rule, though, that if it rings twice in a row, that I should probably answer it, okay? So she rang my cell phone a second time. Well, I wasn't at a point in the conversation where I could hang up, okay? Uh, actually, I was managing one of those, uh, one of the people that tend to get a little anxious. But then, something happened that has never happened before. After the second call on the cell phone, the office phone rang, and on the caller ID, it said Chelsea Stevens. I knew at that point that something was wrong, right? That had never happened before. Actually, I don't think she had ever called and my administrator had answered the phone before Monday. Okay, that, that's how serious it was. All right, so I knew something was wrong. I answered, and Chelsea had been on her way to get groceries. She doesn't go to the grocery store with five children anymore, which I think is smart. Uh, she goes and does pickup. But our Walmart in town does not have pickup, so we have to drive 20 miles away to get pickup. Uh, so she was on her way there, and she had broken down. So she's on the side of the highway. So I went and picked up my parents' van, started driving the 15 minutes to where Chelsea was, and the whole time I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do next. Okay, so this is Monday of like this week. We're supposed to leave Wednesday morning to come here, okay? Um, and we didn't want to drive the car that I can't wear a seatbelt when it rains uh, for a whole lot of reasons. So, uh, so I'm thinking about, how am I going to get the car towed? How am I going to get it fixed? How am I going to get it ready to drive to Virginia 48 hours later? And as I arrive, I'm thinking all those poor me thoughts. Why me? Poor little me. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about, how much is this going to cost? How long will we have to wait here for the tow truck? When will the baby stop crying? Supposedly he'd already been crying for like maybe a half an hour before I got there. He was a blubbering mess by the time I got there, poor guy. Uh, that, those are the things I'm thinking of, right? The normal things that most people would be thinking of in that situation. Chelsea, on the other hand, was talking about how thankful she was. You know those people. <laughs> they, they sometimes just make you sick, right? You're in the middle of a bad situation. You're having a great poor me moment. You don't want anybody to ruin it. And they just want to talk about how thankful they are. Doesn't matter the situation, they can find the good in it. Now, to Chelsea's credit, she's not always that annoying and thankful, okay? <laughs> she's just not. But this particular situation, she was uh, thankful. I won't call her annoying. She was thankful that on the part of the highway that she broke down on, there was a huge shoulder. Now, I'm not sure why she needed that huge shoulder, because she was literally, like, parked in the grass. I think the state police officer even laughed at her a little bit because she was so far over and she was worried that she wasn't being cautious enough. Uh, she was thankful that I, I had a job where I could leave work and come rescue them on the side of the, inter, or side of the highway. She was thankful that it happened on Monday instead of on Wednesday on our way to Virginia when the car was totally packed out, right? She was thankful that we had a friend that was willing to 
take care of our vehicle when it was convenient for us and not convenient for him. The guy literally uh, fixed it on Tuesday night and brought it back to us and said that we didn't owe him anything. We have a lot of things to be thankful for, right? But being thankful flips around what the world tells us to think. The world tells us we never have enough, that someone always has more than us. It focuses on what we don't have rather than what we do have. There are a lot of things to not be thankful for in that instance, but there are a lot of things to be thankful for. You see the difference? Remember how easy comparison can shape our view of what we have. When we're constantly looking at what others have that we don't, the focus is on what we're lacking. All the things we have are set aside, and the only thing that matters is what we don't have. That's a totally different way of thinking. So how can we escape the bondage of stuff? What is something practical that you can implement today to separate yourself from materialism and focus your life on God's kingdom? Here's what it is. Very practical, simple. Begin each day by listing something that you're thankful for. Now, we've seen this on social media, specifically in the month of November, right? The month of thankfulness. Every day you list something that you're thankful for. I think it's a great, a, a great process to go through, right? This year, it seems like there's not as many of those people. I'm not sure if it's COVID fatigue or if we just don't have as much to be thankful for. I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't seem like there's as many people doing that. But let's try it out for this next week. Join with me and try it out for this next week, or then extend it to Christmas or through the end of the year. I had a friend who did it for, the entire, for an entire year. She had uh, this thing written out where every day of the month, every, every uh, month of the year, and she would write just one little thing that she's thankful for. Let's physically write it out, make it a habit, make it a discipline. Now, studies show that these gratitude journals, that's what they're called, can improve happiness by 25%. I have no idea what that means. What does improving happiness by 25% actually look like? I don't know. But you know what? We're not necessarily looking for happiness. That's not what our goal is. Our goal in being grateful is not happiness. It's contentment. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. It's here for like a minute and then it's gone. It's fleeting. Contentment is a state of mind that is less impacted by the situation that we find ourselves in. Regardless of our situation, we can be content. Paul drives to the heart of contentment in the passage that we read. Notice he doesn't just say, I was content even though I was hungry or I was content even though I was in want or in need. He says, even in the good times, think about that, even in the good times, When I'm well fed, when I have plenty, when life is going well, I'm still content. I thought that was interesting. You see, contentment isn't only a lesson to those who are in a tough situation, or those who are hungry, or those who are in need. That's not just when contentment is a lesson. Contentment is a lesson for all of us. And my theory is, if you can't be content with little, if you can't be content with a lot, You're not going to be content the opposite way, right? If you can't be content with a little, you're not going to be content with a lot. If you can't be content with a lot, you're not going to be content with a little. It has very little to do with the actual amount of stuff you have. I know extremely poor people who are absolutely content. I know rich people who are absolutely content. And I know the flip side of that. I know poor people who are not content at all. 
And I know rich people who are not content at all. It has nothing to do with the amount of stuff or the amount of money you have. It really doesn't. What it comes down to is, are we living for his kingdom or are we living for our kingdom? Do we trust God or do we not trust him? Many of you know about our situation with little Ezra. Uh, he was born last May, had several complications. We spent six weeks in the NICU, um, and he had a brutal jaw surgery at two weeks old. He was on a ventilator for nine days, and, and we thought we were going to lose him. Told myself, no, that's not going to happen as I was reading over this. Um, you know, he, he was put on a feeding tube. He was on a ventilator for nine days, and, and several times we thought we were going to lose him. I remember driving home from the hospital one morning as Chelsea and I were, were switching off. Stop, stop it, stop it. <laughs> And the whole night I'd been awake fearing that I was going to lose my son. And uh, he'd experienced several episodes where his heart rate and his oxygen level had dropped. And the nurses had to come in uh, to the rescue. And as I was driving home, I had a conversation with my brother-in-law, John, Chelsea's brother. And I told him, I knew that I needed to trust God. And I could tell you a story about how God had prepared us for this months in advance. He told us we needed to trust him. In January, we didn't know why, but in May we found out very, in a very real way why we needed to trust him. He said something back to me that was really tough. John said, Justin, will you trust God even if you lose Ezra? First of all, I just wanted to slap him, but he was in New York, so I couldn't do that. It was a blunt question, a question that I'm not sure that I was willing to answer at that point. I'm not sure I'm willing to answer it now. And that question kind of gets to the heart of it, though. Are we content regardless of what life throws our way? Or maybe are we content despite what life throws our way? The practice of gratefulness reshapes our mind to focus on the things that we do have instead of the things that we don't. Let's be in the practice of being grateful people. And when we do, we find a life of freedom from materialism, from stuff. A life free from the bondage of never having enough, of comparison, of envy. We find a life that pursues his kingdom, not our kingdom. A life that trusts that God always provides and is always enough for us. The second way of living a life free from stuff is to be generous. Now, you may remember me talking earlier about the slight upward comparison. Here's where I think it actually has an impact practically. You're always on the verge of having enough, but you're not quite there. This leads us to believe that we can obtain happiness if we have just a little bit more, a few more things, a bigger house, a nicer car, the newest gadget or wardrobe, just a little bit more. And when we're on the verge, we may be able to get there by using just a bit more of what we already have to indulge ourselves. I mean, come on, if God is getting 10% of what you have, and that 10% is standing between what you want and what you can get. We can just give God his later, right? He'll always be there. He doesn't need it right now. 
You see where that leaves us? We begin to compromise our faithfulness to him in order to obtain what we want. We begin to compromise his kingdom for our kingdom. Now, I'm a guy that sees the tithe from the Old Testament as a minimum. I'm not sure I can back that up, right? But when I look at the words of Jesus and I see how he talks about the laws of the Old Testament and what is expected now, the ante always seems to be upped. The law says don't murder. Jesus says watch your anger toward your brother. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't even look at a woman inappropriately. The law says to love your neighbor. Jesus says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What he's saying is look, this is a matter of the heart, not just a matter of the head. Remember, I'd love to have an equation, right? Wouldn't it be great to just have a note directly from God saying, if you do this, you'll be doing exactly what I require of you. This percentage, this dollar amount. But God doesn't work that way. He wants to shape us into a person that is after his desires, that is empowered by his spirit, that is after his kingdom. I tell you what, I'm part of a church back in Indiana that's extremely generous. I can tell you stories of extreme generosity over and over again. If there's a need to be met and people are aware of it, consider it done. There's no question. It's always taken care of. You know, that's what the early church was like too. Acts chapter 2, at the very beginning of the church, just after Jesus had ascended into heaven, we see Jesus' followers caring for each other. It says this in Acts 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Then it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Don't you want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. Don't you want to be more invested in his kingdom than you are in your own? Let's read a story from Matthew chapter 19. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, the only one who is, or, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Remember the story of the rich young ruler. Guys, this man has followed all the rules, right? He had it all together, but there was one thing he still lacked. He needed to go sell everything. Now, does that command extend to all of us? Are all of us supposed to go sell everything? Or is that command specific to this particular person? Is the only way for us to, uh, to follow Jesus is to sell everything we have and give it to the poor like this man was called to do? Are we to sell all our possessions and give to those in need as the members of the early church in Jerusalem did? Acts chapter 2. As I said earlier, I think it's a lot more nuanced than that, more specific to us as individuals, right? More geared toward the heart than the law. In other words, it may be different for you than it is for me. So how do we tell? If it's not completely black and white, how do we know if we're doing what's right? 
Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So practical step number two, ask yourself today if you are trying to serve one master over the other. Are you holding on too tight? Do you see what you have as benefiting God's kingdom or your kingdom? My wife and I drove away from Charlottesville two years ago after being here for Thanksgiving, and you know what we knew? It was right around where, highway, or where Interstate 64 and 81 merge. And I remember us having this conversation. We knew this. We were holding on too tight to what God had entrusted to us. We were holding on too tight. It had become too important to us. The numbers in the bank account or the numbers left over every month after we paid our bills were causing us to have a closed fist instead of an open hand. And from there, we knew that something had to change, right? We couldn't serve two masters. Now, it wasn't about a certain percentage or a particular formula. We just knew that stuff was beginning to bind us, was beginning to control us, and stuff in the way that we deal with it, right? It was beginning to bind us, to control us. So we agreed to give in a way that made it hurt a little bit, that took away some of the comfort. We wanted to make a sacrifice, denying ourselves and letting go and acknowledging that we're not in control and that we trust in him. So as I, as I remember that, I know that it's time for us to do it again. As I'm thinking through our, our situation that we're in now, I know it's time to do that again. I can feel it creeping up, the tendency to hold on tight, to retain control, to get a little bit more, to put it for you for use in my kingdom and not his. And I know all the details of why it's creeping up right now. They're all right here. I don't need to go into that this morning. But some of you guys are in the same situation. You feel it creeping up. You want to retain control. You want more stuff. And you know it's time to make a decision, to challenge. So as I work through that over the next couple weeks, what I'm going to ask you to do, in in addition to joining me in listing out the things we're thankful for, will you also join me in in considering what it is that you need to let go of? Will you join me in that? Ask yourself if you're holding on too tight. And if so, make a conscious decision to be more generous. Don't give until it's comfortable. Don't give so you retain just enough control. Give to the point where you know that you're turning it over and it's his, not yours. And I'm telling you, as you make this decision, as you make a concerted effort to be more generous, you will find freedom from stuff and the bondage that it entails. You know, I'm not a big prosperity gospel guy. I'm not. But I love Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, the scripture isn't directed towards us necessarily, but the principle remains true. You cannot outgive God. What he possesses is so much more than you can imagine. What he has at his disposal dwarfs our tiny little storehouses. 
When we're focused on honoring him with what we have, the blessings that ensue, the blessings of contentment, the blessings of joy, of relationships, those blessings will be abundant and the material things fade away. It it may not always be material rewards, but there are rewards there nonetheless. And those rewards are often never materialized in this life. They're expected in the next one. Challenge number one, be grateful, write it down, list it out, go into detail. Challenge number two, be generous. Ask God if you're holding on too tight, if you have a clenched fist. And if you are, open up your hand, give more. Open hands, not closed fists. And finally, the third one, be grounded. You may ask, what in the world does be grounded mean? And I get it, it seems like I just, I, I needed another G word and grounded fit there with, like, uh, with, with the other two, but this is actually, I think, the most important one of all. If we don't have this one, the other two really don't even make sense. To me, being grounded means knowing your place in the universe, knowing where you are in relation to God, knowing that you are created not for yourself, but for him. That's why we're here. It's not for us, it is for him. Essentially, your kingdom, the kingdoms that we build, are small and irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. His kingdom is the only thing that matters. You are created, he is the creator. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five, it says this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Maybe maybe this scripture is a little overused in sermons. I know I've used it a lot. But it's central to how we view ourselves. Absolutely central to how we view ourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And I I like to take a look at the life of Jesus and ask myself a question. If he could do it, why shouldn't I? So, So bear with me for a minute. Think of it like this. If Jesus, the creator of all things, was in heaven, the son of God, and he gave himself up, why shouldn't I? If he wanted the Father's will to be done so intensely that he gave himself up to death, even a criminal's death on a cross, Who am I to not give myself up? So my proper role is this, to seek first his kingdom, not mine. To bring him glory, not me. To carry out his will, not mine. I love a certain scripture in John chapter three. It's not the one that you're thinking of. John the Baptist says this, he must become greater, I must become less. That's our place. We must become less. He must become greater. So challenge number three today is to be grounded. Start your day by acknowledging that you are not, but he is. It's a great book, by the way. I am not, but I know I am. Check out that book. You are not God, but he is. You are not creator, but he is. You are not the sustainer of life. He is. Life is not about your kingdom, it's about his kingdom. Challenge yourself today to live by John's words. He must become greater, 
I must become less. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It comes down to this, where is your heart? Are you looking for treasures here or somewhere else? Are you making the right investment? See, that's what I do for a living, right? I try to help people develop their goals and a strategy how to get there. We look at what type of investments fit them and provide for the the greatest return potential for the risk that they're willing to take as individuals. Can I tell you there has never been a greater risk return potential than the investment opportunity laid out before you in his kingdom? Never. This is the greatest risk return potential ever in the history of the universe. If you are willing to invest in the eternal versus the temporal, the things of heaven instead of the things of earth, the return is something that you can't achieve on your own. You can't get it. It's impossible for you to get it on your own. Yeah, I live about a block from the city cemetery in the small town in Indiana that we live in. And I I have a habit of walking through the cemetery and just thinking about the stories of the people that are in there, wondering about the heartache, wondering about the lives that they live. I know it sounds kind of weird, but uh, it helps me. I'm curious about those stories. You know what one of the most fascinating things is when I walk through that graveyard, though? It's become very real to me. Every one of those people have an end date. Every single one of them. Just like we do, right? We all have the same fate here on this earth. We all will return to the dust from which we were created. Every single one of us. And that's humbling. For a math guy, it's also very eye-opening from an investment perspective, right? Let me tell you, the things we pour into on this earth only last for a moment. If the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 79 years old, that's the end. That's it. Those things are over. They're gone. And let me tell you, no one really even cares. They just don't. Those things don't matter when you're gone. The other investment, however, presents us with this. I can get my final slide. It's this. If you were to walk into my office tomorrow and I told you I could get that with your investment, how many of you would sign up? An infinite return potential. Infinite. Never ending. So which is a better investment? Let's finish up by the story that I mentioned earlier from Luke 12. You remember that guy who decided to build the bigger barns? The parable is finished up with these two verses. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. 
What I find interesting is God doesn't call this man evil. What does he call him? He calls him a fool. A fool who made an investment that made no sense. Can you imagine choosing an investment that could end this very night today? An investment that could be gone by the end of the day, and you're going to pour your life into it. You're going to devote everything you have to that. Can you imagine choosing that investment over the investment that has an infinite return, that goes on forever? That is the question that you are faced with, that we're faced with today, every day. What is our focus on? Is it the one that can be taken away this very night? It has a very finite return potential? Or is it the one that lasts forever? It has an infinite return potential. See, we have a Savior who has given his life for us. Let's follow his lead. Let's invest our life in his kingdom and not ours. Finish up by saying this. Let's take the risk of following him. Is it risky? Yeah, it goes against everything we're taught, right? It tells us to deny ourselves. Let's take the risk of following him, giving our life over to him, emptying ourselves, letting him fill us up, and obtaining a return that only he can give, one that is infinite. Pray with me. Father God, we love you and we praise you. God, help us to be people of open hands and not clenched fists. Help us to be people that are grateful, not complaining. And help us to be people that know our role in this world. Our role is not to build up our kingdom, but it's to build up yours. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.